following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And we've reveled at being able to come back to Salt Lake and see what God is doing in this congregation and through you in our family's life, and we are grateful for that. We are going to look this morning again at the book of Colossians, the third chapter, verses 18 through the first verse of chapter 4. And one of the things I want to do, I also marveled this week as I think about God's grace, there are probably four sermons that I would really want to preach out of Colossians. That doesn't mean I don't like others, but those four I have really wanted. And as I meditated on this passage this week, I realized I have gotten every one of them. I'm not sure how we worked that out, but I like it. But one of the things I want to do this morning when we look at this passage is I want to be sure that we tie the pieces together because it would be very easy to just speak about what God says in these verses. And that's probably the most common way to speak on this passage. And it would be very easy to do that. And if I do that, I believe we will miss what I think is the most important thing that Paul wants to say to us in this passage. So I want to go back and sort of walk you through what we've talked about, uh, steal from some other guys' sermons who've preached from here, and then uh, see how that all fits together. Because this isn't just an isolated passage about what your home ought to look like. It's integrally related to what Paul is saying in the rest of this letter. I believe that in the book of Colossians, Paul has given to us in condensed form a course of study about cults and what God has to say about the cults. I think Paul wrote this to the first cult that ever existed, the Judaizers. They had their own answer for the question, how can we live in such a way, uh, how can we live our lives in a way that pleases God? Uh, People who are serious about religion want to somehow please God. False teachers, those from Paul's day to the present day, would answer that question pretty much in the same way. You please God by living by a set of man-made rules. The Judaizers had their own version of the Old Testament law. And they wanted to try to to get people to uh, follow their version of the law. Since... Anybody who's ever tried to live by the law, you know, people who tell you on the street that what they're trying to do is live by the Ten Commandments or by the Golden Rule or by the Sermon on the Mount, whatever that response may be, if they're honest, they will always tell you the same thing. And that is, we don't quite make it. If they're really honest, they will respond, we don't come anywhere near making it. And so, since we never fully obey God's law, the Judaizers invented their own system with their own set of laws. And frankly, even that they didn't do very well at. But they had their own set of laws and they were insisting that everybody ought to play by their rules. The fact of the matter is, what Paul tells us in this letter is that we will never produce enough good fruit to please God. We aren't capable of doing that. 
And so Paul tells us that the solution is provided by Christ through his completed work on the cross to which we add nothing. As I've worked through this book, I believe there are four fundamental principles for godly living that answer the question, what does true spirituality look like? And we've talked about these in the other times that we've been here, but I want to back up and pick up from there. He tells us that true faith or true spirituality is the result of faith, not works. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did you receive Him? The same way as you received Him, so walk in Him. Established in faith. True spirituality is a result of faith. Trusting Christ, not works. Second thing he tells us about true spirituality is that true spirituality is a result of Christ's finished work. Still in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us that in Christ, everything that God is, is present in Him. And then he goes on to make this incredible additional statement. And you are complete in Him. When we are in Him, we lack nothing. We have everything we need. Chapter 2 concludes by telling us that true spirituality is never the result of legalism. It is never the result of living by the rules. Verses 20 and 21, he says, If you died with Christ to the fundamental principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to rules? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Spirituality doesn't come by playing by the rules. Anybody's rules. The rules... We tend to make for ourselves, you know, that we end up frustrated because we don't make it. I have good news. God isn't asking you to play by the rules. He's asking you to trust His Son. Finally, true spirituality is the result of living to glorify God. Chapter 3 verse 17 summarizes what I think that chapter is talking about. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's about living for His glory, not our own. Now, actually, that last principle is expanded from here, really, to the end of the book. And that's why I want to plug into that this morning. He gives us four specific implications of that principle, the last of which is going to expand into what we want to look at this morning. But the first implication is that we should be focusing our attention on Christ's finished work, not looking at ourselves in the mirror. Focus your attention on Christ's finished work. Walk with your eyes fixed on Christ who is seated in the heavenlies because it's done. We shouldn't be watching ourselves, fixing our focus on ourselves and our failures and our shortcomings. We ought to be focusing on His completed work. The second thing He tells us by way of implication, is that we should consider dead the things that characterize the old lifestyle. Those things no longer have power over us. Consider them dead. Let go of them. Third, he tells us to dress appropriately as members of God's family. Now, 
Every time I talk about this particular passage, I always get afraid that somebody is going to start looking at their hemline. Or, or whether they're wearing a tie or not. Uh, or that's not what he's talking about when he's talking about the way we dress. Talking about putting on a new lifestyle. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, new clothes. We ought to look different than we used to look. We ought to look different than the world around us looks. And he's not talking about the physical clothes you wear. He's talking about our lifestyle. We ought to look different. And then the fourth implication and this is really the starting point for what I really want to look at this morning, is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Allow Christ's Word to take up residence in your life. Because when Christ's Word takes up residence in our lives, it will take control of our lives and will produce a different kind of lifestyle. Now, we've looked at the theological principles that lie behind what we want to look at this morning. It's good theology. It's the basis for godly living. But now Paul moves beyond the theological basis to talk about the how-tos of godly living. Judaizers say it's living by the rules. Those who react against that approach tend to go towards libertinism, which is to say we're saved by grace, not by works, so I can do whatever I feel like doing. That's not Paul's answer either. So how do we live a godly life? For some reason, my sermon seems to be falling into sets of four this morning. But he gives us four commands for godly living. And they are commands to keep. But it's not like the list of rules that the Judaizers have. They all deal with an attitude, with a different perspective on life. So let the peace of Christ Determine how we should live. Chapter 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let it function, let his peace function as referee in your life. Let His peace tell you when you're going the way you ought to go. Not a bunch of rules. The peace of Christ. Second, he tells us to be thankful. Gratitude. When you consider what God has done for us, we ought to be continually grateful. Verse 15, he says, be thankful. Verse 16, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Verse 17, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. We ought to be the most grateful people on the face of the earth. The third command for godly living let the Word of Christ permeate your thinking. Look at verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. When the Word of Christ permeates our life, when it produces its fruit then it becomes evidence, evident through our way of dealing with one another. Through our desire to encourage one another to be all that God wants us to be. In verse 17, do everything so that Christ gets the credit. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, he's not saying to uh, 
do it in the name of the Lord Jesus so that we walk around and saying in Jesus name, sort of like praying in Jesus name. People walk around saying in Jesus name. Amen. And I pray that way. But that's not what that means. To do it in Jesus name means to recognize who he is. To come on the basis of what He has done to give Him the credit and to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. Do everything so that Christ gets the credit. In dependence on Him and in recognition of His authority. Now here's the principle I want you to get. And it rests, I believe, in verses 16 and 17. But verse 16 in particular talks about letting the Word of Christ permeate our being. Permeating our life. And my point this morning is that when the Word of God permeates our life, it produces its fruit in us. And that is the answer to the question, how should we live to please God? The Word of God permeates our life and produces its fruit in us. Now those of you who were around 20 years ago or so have undoubtedly heard this question before. But it helps us get a perspective on what I believe our Lord is trying to tell us this morning. So I want to give you a little quiz, but it's the kind of quiz you'll all pass. At least I think you'll pass. How many of you have ever seen a fruit tree? Let me see your hands. See how easy this is? You can all pass this. All right. Uh, how many of you have seen an apple tree? Well, a few less, but most of you. How many of you have ever seen an orange tree? Okay, how many of you have seen an apple tree that produces oranges? Now, I'm not talking about grafting, okay? I I am no tree expert. I know nothing about it. But I realize the rules are a little different when you do grafting. And that has a spiritual point, too, because we are grafted into the true tree. But did you ever ask yourself this very profound question? When, when you think about the fact that you've never seen an apple tree that produces oranges, did you ever ask yourself why? This is about the only thing I know about plants. But, but I can claim to be an expert on this one point. Every tree produces according to its nature. That's why apple trees produce apples. And orange trees produce oranges. Because the tree produces according to its nature. Now what strikes me here is that while that principle is so simple, we just somehow don't get it. When it comes to the spiritual life. You see, that same principle is true. We produce according to our nature. Which isn't very pretty fruit. And God produces according to His nature. And the three key passages come to mind that I just want to remind you of this morning. If you've been around the church for any length of time, none of these passages will surprise you. But Galatians 5, verses 16 through 23, talk about what I produce when I try to do my thing. And I produce according to my nature, and it is ugly. Because my nature is capable of producing the ugliest kind of stuff imaginable. But the good news is the story doesn't stop there. Because it goes on to talk about the fruit which the Spirit produces. When He resides within us, He produces His nature in us. 
And we get what we know is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. That doesn't come from me. That comes from the Spirit of God. Second passage that has a similar message is a parallel to this one. And when we read the verses we just read in verses 16 and 17, you almost, at least I can't read it without being reminded of Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 verse 18 talks about not being controlled by alcoholic beverage, but being controlled by the Spirit of God. And when we're controlled by the Spirit of God, He produces His fruit in us. And there, He talks about corporate worship. He talks about personal worship. He talks about thanksgiving. And He talks about submitting to one another. And all of those are things that the Spirit of God produces. None of those come naturally for us. At least, that's my testimony. I don't naturally worship God. I naturally want to worship me. I'm not naturally grateful. You know, we receive something special and we tend to respond saying, but why wasn't it bigger? Or better or more? We're not naturally grateful. And in case you didn't know it, one thing we never naturally do is submit to other people. Those four things are the fruit of being controlled by the Spirit. Now in Colossians 3, verse 16, he tells us that being controlled by the Word of God creates or produces essentially the same things. Worship. Gratitude and submission to one another. When God's Word controls our life, it will impact our relationships with other people. And that's how we get to verse 18 of Colossians 3. He's going to talk to us about three changed relationships that will only be produced in our life as our lives are permeated by the Word of God, as God takes control of our lives and produces these things in us. We're controlled by God's Word when we do everything in His name. We have a distinct attitude towards authority that affects our relationships. We recognize that God is sovereign in the universe, that He has the right to rule my life. And so, I submit control of my life to Him. We recognize His right to rule in the universe, His right to govern our life. And we submit to the authority which He has established. Now we're going to see three pairs of relationships that he talks about in the passage we're looking at this morning. And each of them has a general truth that is seen in all three of them. And I want to lay that out so that as we look at them more carefully will understand what he's saying to us. The first is that all of these spheres of relationship, all of these areas of submitting to authority, they all flow out of a spirit of peace and unity. That's what verses 15 to 17 have been talking about. How the Spirit of God or the Word of God places our focus on love and unity and gratitude and submission to one another. Submission to authority flows from submission to God and each other. One of the things this tells me with its focus on unity and love is that these 
prerequisites or these principles for submitting to authority are not given to us so that somebody can come along and dominate and say, I'm the boss here. You better submit to me because I'm in charge. This passage makes very clear that's not the spirit with which our Lord has spoken. It's about love. It's about mutual edification and mutual submission. The second truth presented in all three of these spheres is that all of them focus on personal responsibility, not on our rights. You hear that? Let that sink in. All of these spheres of responsibility or authority or submission, they all focus on personal responsibility, not on our rights. They're not given so that we can insist on our rights. I don't know about you, I have a problem when I read this passage. Uh, When we do seminars on the Christian life, I often have Helen help me. I was tempted to do that this morning, but I'll spare her. But we've got a problem. When we read passages like this one, you know what my problem is? My problem is, I'm glad to read her part to her. You know what? She likes to read my part to me. Anybody... Now, I won't have you raise your hands. Anybody else know what that feels like? Isn't it interesting? We're always more concerned about you reading your part than I am about me reading my part. And please notice here as in Ephesians 5, what is addressed to husbands is not the wife's thing. Paul did not write about my wife to me. He wrote about what I'm supposed to do, not what she's supposed to do. Now make no mistake about it, he has plenty to say about what she's supposed to do too. But it's not my role to tell her what God said to her. I have enough to handle in keeping my own part straight. They focus on our responsibility, not on our rights. They're given so that each of us might do what God wants us to do. Third thing that's true of all three of these spheres is that they are all reciprocal, but they are not conditional. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? They're all two-way issues. There is a word for the husband. There is a word for the wife. There is a word for the children. There is a word for parents. There is a word for the slave. There is a word for masters. They are reciprocal. But what they don't do is become conditional. They never give any of us a right to say, I will do my part when you do yours. Do you notice that? None of them say, husbands, love your wives when they submit to you. None of them say, wives, submit to your husbands as long as they love you the way they're supposed to. They are reciprocal, but they are not conditional. They aren't given so that we do our part when somebody else does theirs. Because the problem is all of our computers break down at that point and we'll never get where we desire to go that way. You see, the bottom line in all of these areas is that our submission to authority is evidence of our submission to the Lord. Interesting how many times he says that in this passage. In verse 18, he says, as is fitting in the Lord. 
Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is about us doing what God desires us to do because His Word is controlling our thoughts and our lives. Well, let's take a little closer look at each of these sets of instructions and what Paul says to us. Verses 18 and 19, he talks about the relationship between wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So he begins with a word to wives to submit to their husbands. He is establishing an order here. He is not concerned about giving orders. This isn't an effort to prove inferiority of women. It's not an effort to put them down. But in any team effort, somebody has to have the final word. God says, in the home, that's the husband. He isn't given the final word so that he can get what he wants. I mean, you, you want to you wanna push my button sometime. Just let me overhear you say, I'm in charge and I get what I want. That is not the spirit of this verse. The husband's use of that authority ought to be a means of affirming his love for her. When we use our authority in love, it's amazing how our wives respond to that use of authority. We ought to be using it seeking the wife's welfare, not seeking to have our way. My wife and I like to have arguments. Hate to surprise you. But we do. We enjoy a good argument. Especially a certain kind of argument. You know, where do you want to go to eat tonight? No, I want to go where you want to go. Where do you want to go? No, I want to go where you want to go. Where do you want to go? I hope we're having more of that kind of argument than the other kind. You know, but, but that's, that's the way that Husbands ought to be using the responsibility and the final word that God has given to us. Seeking the welfare of our spouse, not seeking what I want. It's not about getting my way. I also want to observe that submission is always voluntary. Have you ever tried to force somebody to submit to you? In case you haven't learned, I will tell you, it doesn't work. You may force a child to obey, but you will never force somebody to submit. Because submission is an attitude. It has to come from inside of the person. It's the appropriate response for a godly woman. As is fitting in the Lord. Then verse 19 has a word to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives. He writes this in a day when women were popularly considered to be the property of the husband. What he says goes. He can use his property for whatever he wants to use it for. Paul doesn't share that attitude. The wife is not... Property. 
The positive side, he exhorts men to love their wives. It's different than pagan love where you love somebody because of what they bring to you. You love somebody because they perform well. You love somebody because they do everything you expect them to do. Godly love isn't based on what she is or on whether she satisfies my expectations. We choose to love her as God chose to love us when we were headed the opposite direction. When everything we do offends Him, He chose to love us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We choose to love her, to seek her best, whether she deserves it or not. 1 Corinthians 13 just spells out a list of things where we give without hope of receiving in return. Now that's the positive side, exhorting the husband to love his wife. The negative side is don't be harsh with your wife. Be careful how you treat your wife. Uh, Peter, in his comment similarly, talks about treating the wife as fine china, handling her delicately and with care. Paul says we shouldn't be harsh. Uh, that, that word is, is, refers literally to a very sharp point, something that jabs and picks at you. It's used of spicy food that stings or that tastes bitter. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity for ministry in India. I think this word fits beautifully to describe Indian food, uh, at least for me. I, the guy I was traveling with loved it. Uh, my travels, it was not a very pleasant experience. You think Mexican food is hot, you ought to try the Indian variety of it. They used it to describe a pungent flavor like vinegar. When it describes a person, it describes somebody who is disagreeable and critical and angry. And Paul says, don't be that way with your wives. In fact, Paul indicates that they've been treating their wives that way. And they ought to stop. He goes on to talk about the relationship between children and parents. Verse 20, he addresses this word to children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Notice it's a different command than the command for the wife. To the wife, it says submit. The child, it says obey. Are you... Consciously aware of the difference between submitting and obeying? You see, it's possible to obey without submitting. It's possible to submit without obeying. That's a little harder to envision. But, but it is. You see, children may obey without submitting when we say to our children, uh, Sit down. You may have heard this story before. It's an old one. You tell your child to sit down and they don't want to sit down. So they say standing. I said sit down. They stay standing. And finally they know this is the last straw. I said sit down. At least my kids knew by that time they'd better. But about that time you hear this little voice say, but I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) That's obedience without submission. It's standing up on the inside. Wives, interestingly, are instructed to submit. It's an attitude. Children, interestingly enough, are not given the option in this passage... They're not given the option of deciding to submit but not obey. A wife might do that. A wife might say, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. 
my conscience won't allow me to, or my relationship with God won't allow me to. Uh, Remember the apostles back in Acts 5? They submitted to the authority, but they had to disobey the command. But uh, what people don't seem to get about this is when you do that, if you've submitted, you can't submit with a clenched fist. You understand what I'm saying? You see, it's one thing to say, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And submissively accept the consequences of that decision. Continue to respect your husband in spite of the fact that it may cost you something. The apostles had no way of knowing but what they could have died for their disobedience. And yet they respected the authority which God had established. Believe that's the idea of a wife submitting. But for children... That isn't presented as an option. The children are told to obey. That's different. And it's not always easy. See, I just happen to believe that God is a big enough God to take care of the results of that kind of obedience. And God can protect a child who says... God's Word says to obey your parents in everything, which is what it says. God can handle that. And God can provide protection. When a child trusts Him and obeys God. Well, there's a word here for parents as well. Parents, do not provoke your children. Don't abuse your authority. Don't embitter them. There's a difference between disciplining a child and having them get frustrated and angry and nagging and bawling out and criticizing our kids to where they develop an attitude that nothing I can do will ever satisfy my dad or my mom. This doesn't mean that if our kids get upset with us that we've done something wrong. But it does mean, I believe, we ought not to be continually nagging, criticizing, bawling out, attacking, lest they give up discouragement. Correction is necessary, but we need to discipline our children as well. Encourage our children, not discourage and defeat them. Finally, the third area of a relationship is between slaves and masters. And we don't have the same cultural situation today, but we do have similar circumstances in our relationship between employees and employers. Verse 22, Paul says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. Employees, obey your employer. Faithfully do what your boss expects and desires you to do. We could spend a lot more time on this this morning, but I'm going to move on and just leave that principle. Again, with the understanding that ultimately we work for God. And He's the one who repays. There's a word here for masters as well, for the employer. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. For them, slaves had no rights. And nobody was concerned about the master 
guaranteeing the rights of his slaves. Nobody was expecting mutual submission. But Paul's word here is the Christian employers ought to be different. Bosses should remember that we too have a boss. And he will judge fairly. Since we're God's servants, we should treat our employers or our workers as we want God to treat us. Now I want to come back in closing this morning to that final summary, the underlying summary that when God's Word resides in us, He will produce something that doesn't come naturally. He will produce a spirit of submission, of love, that is different. When God's Word resides in us, His Word produces a proper attitude towards authority. So how do our lives reflect the control of God's Word? People who watch us don't see a difference. Why would they want to follow us? When people examine our lives, can they see visibly evidence that our life is controlled by the Word of God? I want to close this morning with a story that has radically impacted my life, really as a witness more than anything else. Uh, Many years ago, I was teaching a, a Greek exegesis course in the book of Colossians. And as I was teaching this particular passage, we came to the end of the class time, and I happened to notice one young lady that I knew very well squirming. And as she squirmed, I squirmed. The class came to its end, and uh, I rather quickly closed up my Bible and started to walk out about as quickly as I could for the door. I wanted out of there because I had a feeling what was coming. She didn't let me get to the door. She said, Don Rafa, that's a popular way of referring to me in Spanish, You know, when you were talking about children obeying your parents this morning, you know you were talking to me. Yes. (laughs) But but be assured I wasn't targeting you. Oh, I know that. But the Spirit of God was talking to me. Now, 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 wait a minute. Now, you know, maybe you better talk to a couple other professors before you do anything rash. That was me responding to her. Coward that I am. You see, she was a member of a family of five who were studying in the seminary against their father's desires. And she said, what do I do? Talk to some other professors. Because <laughs> I knew this was not going to be popular. And she went through her story how from the time she was a child, her mother had come to know the Lord. And for years, her mother said to her over and over again, don't pay any attention to your father. He's an unbeliever. And for years, it festered and burned inside him. What do I do? I said, you know, that's between you and the Lord. You've got to decide what you believe God is saying to you. Certainly other professors do not agree with this application to this situation. I don't know what to tell you to do. But I can tell you that if you make pleasing God your goal and do what God says in His Word to do, you win. 
They went home at lunch that day. They came back from lunch and five people were walking across the parking lot toward me. Scary moment. She said, I went home. I told my dad that if he wants me to drop out of the seminary, I will drop out. And paraphrasing what she said, all hell broke loose. All those years of anger and festering broke loose. And he said to her, he said, not only do I want you to drop out of seminary, I want you to give up your fiancé. Tears in her eyes, she said to me, Don't Rafa, there are only two things in life that matter to me. One of them is obeying God and serving Him, and the other is Hedemius. What do I do? He's asking me to give up the only two things that matter in life. Besides her brothers and sisters who were present, Hedemius was present as well. And he was not happy. And I said to her, you know, I can't tell you what God's going to do. All I can tell you is God is a big enough God that you can trust Him. If you do what God wants you to do, I can't guarantee you you'll finish seminary. I can't guarantee you you'll get ahead of me, but I can guarantee you that God will bless. We went back to Guatemala a year or so ago. She graduated from the seminary, married Jeremias. Uh, I talked, we, we support uh, her oldest brother, who is a missionary to Spain today. Several years ago, I heard from, from him that he had had the opportunity to sit down with his father and share Christ with him. And his father made a profession of faith in Christ. What made the difference? Believing God and doing what God says. When the Word of God permeates our life, it will change our attitudes. And people will take note. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to do what comes naturally, to do things our way. We desire to do things your way. May your spirit control our life and produce his fruit in us. May your word permeate our hearts and change our attitudes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.